Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. This is Jason Bresler, Leadership Under Fire's founder and your guest host in this episode of the Optimizing Human Performance Podcast. I'm honored to be having a conversation here at the Gotham Podcast Studio in Midtown Manhattan with Sean Cullen. Sean graduated from Iona College in 2001 with a Bachelor's of Business Administration in Finance and International Business. He played Division I water polo and swam for the Gales while attending Iona. Upon graduation, Sean went to work for Goldman Sachs in August of 2001. He left Goldman in August of 2002 to take an EMT course and join the ranks of the FDNY in February of 2003. Upon completion of Proby School, Sean was assigned to 54 Engine in Midtown Manhattan. He transferred to Squad 1 in 2013 and was promoted to the rank of Lieutenant in 2017. He is presently assigned to Ladder 1 in Lower Manhattan. Sean entered the Air National Guard in 2004 and was commissioned in 2005. He completed undergraduate pilot training at Lachlan Air Force Base in Del Rio, Texas and Rotary Qualification at Fort Rucker, Alabama. Upon graduation from pilot training, he was assigned to a Combat Search and Rescue Personnel Recovery Unit in West Hampton Beach, New York. Sean made two combat deployments to Afghanistan and participated in hurricane rescue and recovery, wildfire support, NASA shuttle launch and recovery, and civilian search and rescue missions. Sean, I greatly appreciate your willingness to sit down and reflect on what you've learned about human performance in both the FDNY and in the cockpit of a Black Hawk helicopter in combat. We've had several leaders on the podcast who have survived near-death experiences in a tactical environment, but I think that your experience in Afghanistan is perhaps the most harrowing. I greatly appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to sit down for a conversation today. Thanks for having me. It's certainly a pleasure to be here and an honor. It's an honor and privilege to be having this, this conversation. So your, your bio suggests that you might not have initially intended to enter the ranks of the FDNY or the Air National Guard for that matter, when you were studying finance and international business at Iona. What were your career plans during your college years at Iona? So while I was at Iona, I uh, was an intern at Goldman Sachs for several years, basically from my sophomore year, junior year, and then throughout my senior year, I would go down into the city, take the uh, train down, and uh, I was working on a uh, syndicate desk doing uh, IPOs. So IPOs being? Initial public offerings on the uh, equity side. Which is when a company when a pri- from- When a private company uh, issues stock to the general public. Okay. So for me, at that time, that's where my focus was. That's where I thought my career was going to lead me. And uh, fortunate enough for me, when I was a, a sophomore in college, my father, who was a New York City detective, said that uh, I should take the entrance exam for the New York City Fire Department and I said to him, Dad, why would I do that? He goes, because you never know where life's going to bring you. You should always have options. And uh, he said to me that uh, even though he was a police officer, that many of his friends growing up became firemen and that uh, those on the fire department always took very good care of each other. And uh, that certainly is 
and was and will always be the truth. So for me, uh, I graduated in 2001. And upon graduation, I went actually to go visit a friend who was living over in Australia. And uh, he was preparing to uh, swim the Cook Strait from the North Island of New Zealand to the South Island. So he asked me if I wanted to come over and do some training with him while I was over in uh, Australia. And then we would go do some skiing and we did all that kind of stuff. So, so I went over to Australia for the summer. We did some swimming and, you know, there was some pretty significant uh, distance swims because he was looking to basically swim a marathon. And uh, so it was enjoyable. And then I came back and uh, started working for Goldman in August, late August. And then basically my, in between my second and third week of work was uh, September 11th, which uh, obviously was a significant day for so many people, especially those down there. And, and the office that you were working in with Goldman at the time, physically located where? It was on Maiden Lane, uh, 180 Maiden Lane. And so um, that morning, uh, when the first plane struck the towers, uh, I was able to see from the backside of the building uh, what I, at that time, thought was an explosion. Uh, and I remember speaking to uh, one of the other new employees of the company that was going through the, the program with me and just saying, oh my God, uh, you know, there's been an explosion. And then just seeing the backside of the tower and all the papers and the fireball. And then you know, going through that experience downtown from basically, you know, hearing all the information, the second tower being struck. Once the first tower came down, you know, they, there was so much information coming about that, you know, we didn't know if there were more planes coming. So after the first tower came down, I made the decision to, uh, to leave. And I got on a ferry that took me to uh, the North Shore of Long Island. So I kind of escaped out of New York that day. And I can remember being on the ferry and watching the second tower come down and just, you know, having that, you know, that moment of the country's been attacked and uh, where, where are we going now? And for me, uh, it wasn't until really the next day I, I went down to the beach uh, with two of my friends that I grew up with just to go body surfing and kind of just decompress a little bit. The, the beach being out east on Long yeah, Island. Yeah, on Long Island. So we're down in Long Beach. And uh, we just went to go down and, and go for a swim. And uh, I remember seeing the Navy come in that, that morning and the F-18s flying overhead. And it kind of just changed something inside of me that said, I have to do something different with my life. Wow. And I stayed working at Goldman for, for an additional year, kind of looking at what my options were going to be. And I got a phone call from the New York City Fire Department uh, saying, you know, kind of giving me a forecast of where I'd be starting and what I needed to do in order to uh, be hired to take the certified first responder course. And so uh, in August of uh, 2002, I terminated my employment at Goldman and took an EMT course in preparation for starting the Fire Academy in February of 2003. All right. So you spent... A year working with Goldman, the 9-11 attacks were kind of the impetus for you to leave the financial sector and pursue a career with the, with the fire department. So, you know, that, that year you spent with Goldman, here you are, a young guy, uh, college education, focused on business, working for arguably one of the most prestigious financial institutions or on Wall Street. 
So, so what was it like to be a, a probie of sorts in, in that world, particularly working in kind of the financial sector before widespread regulation would, would take hold of the industry years later during the financial crisis? Just, just curious, like, what that experience was, was like. So that industry, especially at that time, super competitive, especially at, at a, uh, a company like Goldman Sachs. You know, everything's kind of fast and furious. Guys are working on deals. Everything's very competitive. And uh, one of the things I would say that I learned, you know, working there is even though a lot of guys are out having a good time and there's, there's a, you know, a bit of a party scene in those companies, you know, after work, when you come to work, you better show up prepared because the next man up, the, if, you, if you skip a beat, someone's passing you by to make it happen. So that was something I kind of learned early on is, is to make sure that whatever situation you know, you're going to be involved in, that you better be prepared and ready to, uh, to step up. I can't think of too many, if any, folks who left the financial industry working for places like Goldman to pursue a career with, with the FDNY. Well, I could say, I mean, for me, I grew up as an ocean lifeguard. So, you know, at an early point in my life, basically from the time I was 16 on, I was introduced to rescue work. And so after everything happened on September 11th, it was important to me to, to kind of get back to something that was inside of me, and that's helping other people. And uh, there's certainly no greater place to do that than New York City Fire Department. So in a certain sense, it kind of almost felt like I was, you know, when I got called from the fire department that I was being presented the opportunity to have a life mission, you know, of, of rescue work, which in a lot of ways also led me towards my time, you know, with the Air National Guard as a combat rescue pilot. Sure, so, and that's something that I, I think we're, uh, we're certainly going to explore later. So, or here shortly. So in 2003, upon completion of the FDNY Fire Academy on Reynolds Island, you would find yourself working as a young firefighter in a firehouse where Engine 54, Ladder 4, and Battalion 9 are quartered, not too far from where we're sitting right now. Arguably one of the busiest firehouses in the world in terms of run volume and certainly home to one of the most complex and vertical response areas. What were your early years in the FDNY like as a young firefighter in, in 54 and 4? And was was being an FDMY firefighter consistent with what you in, had anticipated when you made the decision to leave the financial sector? So, obviously, that's a loaded question. So many things, yes. So many things, no. Going to 54 Engine, you know, housed with 4 Truck and Battalion 9, you know, that house suffered tremendous loss on 9-11. They lost 15 guys. So, um, being a young 23-year-old, I wanted to go to a place where I could make an impact and, you know, to a place that did have loss and because I wanted to be someone that could come in and, and do good work. And that's a complicated thing in itself because you don't necessarily understand all the intricacies of what's going on in a house that has suffered so much loss. You know, there's, there's all the families of uh, the fallen members and there's also still recovery efforts going on in some ways trying to identify you know, the members. So it was, in a lot of ways, a very good place to go, but it, it was also difficult in the sense that there was an, an emotional comp, uh, component that I didn't necessarily know as a young 
firefighter that I was going to be involved in. Hmm. And that was actually, you know, it was a lot of young guys in that house at that time because so many guys were lost. We were kind of replacements in a lot of ways for these guys' friends. And so there was some friction at times, but also uh, I never felt like I wasn't learning or that the other firefighters in the house didn't have our best interests because they certainly did. It was just difficult for everyone at that time. You know, for us being replacements to their friends, for us interacting with families, especially as such, you know, young folks doing it, you know, you're, you're trying your best and you're always trying to have your A game. On top of that, that house in particular is constantly bombarded by the public, you know, who are, who are wanting to ask questions. And, and most of the time, it's always with the best of interests and, and reverence that they have for the fire department. So at a, young, at a young point in my life, in a lot of ways, you're an ambassador of the New York City Fire Department, and, and that presented challenges. It, looking back on it, I wouldn't wish it any other way, but I also know that it was, it was difficult. What's one thing in particular about the FDNY culture that you experienced in your early years that was consistent with what you expected or really resonated with you? So as far as uh, something that I did sort of expect that I would be uh, experienced was the, the family, the feeling of, of family in a firehouse. You know, whether you're having a good day or a bad day, there's going to be support for you. Uh, it may not always come the way you want the support to come, but uh, I, w- I would certainly agree <laughs> with those sentiments. <laughs> yeah, but it's but it's there, you know, and and uh, you know we all go through difficult times in our lives, and uh, the the thing about uh, the FDNY is that we rally around each other to uh, protect and and take care of each other because we know when we go to the fire floor that trust and that bond is where we execute, you know, because of having that respect and trust for each other. So you had a, you had a lot going on in a, a relatively short period of time. You're working for Goldman. Now you're a pro being the FDNY. Now you're signed to 54 engine in Midtown. And then a short time later, you, you make a, a pretty serious decision to take a leave of absence from the FDNY to attend flight school yes. um, with the Air National Guard. I guess first, what what was the impetus for you to to join the Air National Guard as an aviator? So, as a young kid, I always uh, was interested in the military, and uh, two things that I had wanted to be as as a young boy was a, a Navy SEAL and a and a pilot. So, you know, pretty much at that point, you know, once I kind of made the decision that uh, I wasn't going to be a Navy SEAL. <laughs> Despite the fact that you could swim the, the English Channel, or yeah, I mean that that's uh, I guess kind of besides the point because, <laughs> you know, I, I find that uh, you know a, a pilot that is in the unit that I eventually ended up joining, uh, he ended up he landed a helicopter at my brother's high school, and uh, so I can remember my brother coming. Uh, he went to Chaminade High School on Long Island, and uh, he came came home one day and was was telling me about you know this guy landing it was one of his teachers it was his math teacher wow landed a helicopter on the on the football field and he's like i can't believe that helicopter is the size of the football field (laughs) because everyone thinks helicopters are smaller than they are but uh you know just hearing what he had to say i was like you know what when i was younger i wanted to be a pilot and uh you know i'm going to try to figure out a way to make this happen 
and because so many firefighters have other careers and other ventures that they involve themselves with, I said, this is going to be one that I think would suit me. So uh, I ended up getting in touch with the unit out there. And unbeknownst to me, I didn't realize it, like the whole process at that time of how many people are competing to get these pilot slots and how difficult it is to actually get them until I sat on a board years later hiring other pilots and seeing how guys travel around the country trying to get these pilot slots. But for me, I think having had that experience on Wall Street, having done so many interviews, having given presentations before, though I didn't have any aviation experience, my experience with rescue work being an ocean lifeguard and now a New York City firefighter, and then being able to kind of set myself up for success through the interview process kind of gave me a leg up that, you know, I got hired on the first board, which, you know, is, is rare that that happens. Right. So, you know, I was, that was kind of like, you know, in a certain sense, dumb luck for me because I didn't realize how competitive it was. And then and here Ultra I am. Ultra competitive, yeah. Yeah. How, how lucky I was getting it on my first uh, time around. And for me, it was the hell, I wanted to fly those helicopters to do that combat rescue mission. So... Uh, what was flight school like? Flight school is difficult. <laughs> so, uh, you know, flight school is basically a six day a week venture where, you know, you're, you're competing against some of the most talented, you know, guys in the military, men and women to, uh, you know, the active, on the active duty side, they're competing for their, uh, the aircraft they're going to eventually fly. For me, I already knew, but you're still competing against them. You want to be the best. So uh, I enjoyed the experience a lot. You know, it's, it's kind of one of those things where once you've learned something, it's on to the next. You can't even enjoy the fact that you just were able to, uh, you know, get over that hurdle because as soon as you just get to it, it's on to the next hurdle. And keep, so it's a, it's a very competitive, very challenging environment, you know, because flying in combat is super dynamic and challenging and you have to be always moving on to the next thing what was the toughest block of, of flight school for you or was there a particular evolution or block of instruction or so exam I, that... i'm not i'm not gonna lie for me the hardest part was the beginning because for like 45 days i was airsick and so having to go through all all the initial fight, fighter fundamentals and and learning the aircraft and doing all those things while throwing up is insane. And even for a helicopter guy, like the initial so all, block is all, all Air fixed. Force pilots go through a fixed wing qualification. Okay. So undergraduate pilot training where I was at Laughlin Air Force Base, that's flying uh, the T6 Texan II. And that's, it kind of looks like a World War II style fighter plane. And you're going through all the initial fighter fundamentals because that's kind of how they track everything in the Air Force. So you're doing your aerobatics, then your instrumentation, then your formation flying. So for me, it was getting through that initial hurdle of air sickness. I was in this thing called the barony chair, which is, is a chair where they spin you and that in multiple directions and they spin you the other direction to try to get you over that air sickness. I went there for 45 days straight. They're like, no one doesn't quit. I don't know, I was, I was like, oh, I can't quit. I can't go back to my firehouse in shame. <laughs> they'll, they'll never let me live it down. Yeah, I would imagine, uh, like you said earlier, you, the, the brothers are looking out for you. It, it might not be the, necessarily the way that you had hoped they, they yeah. would. So in, the, in that sense, the mere fact that I knew that they were looming on the other side if I came back a failure, 
was just enough for me to say, I can't fail this. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, and I guess there are folks that attempt to go through flight school where the air sickness never, never does subside. It's one of those things where at a certain point you should, and, and I did get through it. And then once you're through it, you're through it. So it's, you know, for me, I had to play a little bit catch up because I was falling behind some of the other things as I was battling that hurdle for me. And then, you know, once I did that, you know, once I got to the instrument phase, I did well, I excelled at that. And then formation, you know, kind of just right back in the mix with the rest of uh, my fellow students. So I guess your answer is then graduating from the, the chair? What? Yeah, so I mean, there's not, there's not necessarily a graduation from that, but getting through that particular hurdle and then knowing that the rest of it's going to be kind of a little bit easier, you know, because, you know, when you're in physical, you know, distress like that, and it, it mentally it wears on you as well, just knowing that I'm going to go up in this aircraft and I'll be feeling sick and I won't be able to focus the way I need to. And then when I get down from that, I'm going to have to go sit and expose myself to this chair, which is just as torturing. Yeah, it just day in and day out was, it was, you know, it was stressful, to say the least. So a bunch of my buddies that are naval aviators have suggested that um, the dunk tank, right, or I guess some of the evolutions that involve water are, are at times a, a point of consternation, are are challenging for aviators. But I guess given your, your strong background yeah. in the water, so for, plan, so for me that was like a place that when I went to water survival, I was very relaxed. Yeah, and you know, in, in a certain sense, I was able to actually because of my comfort help other guys get through that time because it is challenging for for those who are not comfortable with water. You're you're being dropped in the water in these mock aircraft that turn upside down. You're still in Inverted. your harnesses, sure. so it can be disorienting for sure. All right, so so I feel I feel like fixed wing platforms are often viewed as being sexier, and maybe that's because of films like Top Gun. But is there any merit to the notion that rotary platforms are considerably more challenging to to fly? Well, obviously, combat aviation in whichever form you're going to uh, be involved is going to be difficult at some point. But in, in particular, I would say that helicopters, because of uh, where you are operating in in the combat zone, you know, lots of times for for my crews, you know, we're going to point of injury under an active combat engagement to make it, you know, an extraction where, you know, as we get to about 100 feet, we're going to start kicking dust up. So now we're not even going to be able to physically see the landing zone. So now you're, you're relying on instrumentation to land into an uneven surface. So while people are shooting at you, where, you know, maybe that's not going to happen to an F-16 driver. So uh, that was something that I always kind of felt drew me to that mission was that I'd be closer to the combat, even though I'm not necessarily directly involved myself. But, I mean, there were several times where we were, you know, engaged by the enemy or returned fire. So our tactics are are such that we fly in a two-ship formation one aircraft's going to provide overhead cover and kind of manage some of the radio transmissions while the other aircraft's going to go in and do, do the pickup. So put the PJs down. And uh, so the, the mission I was flying was to support the pararescue. And uh, for, you know, a lot of what we did on the deployments were picking up soldiers, uh, sailors, Marines, coalition forces, gunshot wounds, IED blasts, you know, multiple traumas. 
And so, uh, you know, time is of the essence to make that, that happen. So having everything set up for success is important. Yeah, and I think it's it's reality, right? That flying a halo, you're you're either landing in a hot LZ or departing a hot LZ, or in many instances, probably doing doing both uh, under some pretty intense experience uh, conditions. And I think that your your real world combat experiences certainly validate that. Yeah. So a lot of being in that environment is being able to kind of isolate at times to what we would call sterile cockpit. So the only things we're going to com communicate to each other are the things that are important to executing that task at hand at that time. And a lot of times that's in your takeoffs and your landings where we're communicating collectively to, to get to that objective because between the dust outs flying, you know, with, with people that are, you know, shooting at you. And then also sometimes just the geography itself is tremendously challenging, you know, whether it's landing into a, an open field in some trees or, you know, on the side of a river. I mean, I've, we've done everything from landing into the actual IED blast itself, just knowing that, you know, you can see as you land in a certain zone, it's an ambush. And so now there could be additional roadside bombs and, you know, where are we going to put this helicopter? And you make the decision, you know, as you're going, all right, well, this place already exploded. I'm going to put it down in there. So now I'm landing in, into a crater. So, you know, that can be super difficult. And, uh, you know, I can remember uh, in one particular instance, nighttime flight, landing into this group of trees with, uh, you know, a, a soldier basically trying to guide us in. And, and as we're coming in, the dust kicks up around 150 feet. I can see the line of trees in front of me. And we're coming into this tight zone. And, you know, I get to about 50 feet, and I can kind of see where the soldier is a little bit, and then he starts running, which causes a little bit of a, you know, drift deviation for me. Is it me that's moving, or is it, it, is it the soldier that's moving? So, you know, you just continue to uh, rely on your cues and get into that zone. And I remember landing, the, uh, the gunner's like, brakes, 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 you know, which just basically means, all right, let us know we're, we're stopping, coming to our stop. And a lot of times you'll roll a little bit once you land because of how you're executing the landing. And my, the energy inside my body was just, I could feel my feet shaking when we hit the ground. And I was like, oh my God, that was so dangerous. And I can't let that necessarily, you know, consume me or, or I can't push that energy to the other members in the crew because I need everyone working together to execute that, that landing, which is difficult for all of us. But when you're on the controls, you have to be super focused and, and know inside that you have to have that internal confidence to know that I can do this. And, and once you do it, you know, just that, that energy that builds inside of you is just palpable. And, and uh, <laughs> in a lot of ways, you know, exhilarating. How, how many combat missions do you think you flew in total? Combined in, in Afghanistan. So you did two separate combat yeah, deployments, so one in 2009 I, and 10, one, one a few years later. I, I think I have about 120. Wow. Somewhere in that zone. Significant. Yeah. So, and that's everything from going to uh, FOBs to pick up soldiers or out to point of injuries. We did uh, support for the task force, MARSOC, uh, the British soldiers, the U.S. Marines. So... A whole host of uh, you know different groups that we did support for. 
Yeah, I should mention as a as a point of reference, beside the fact that we were there at the same on the ground at the same time, though we didn't yet know each other. You mobilized for a deployment to southern Afghanistan in two thousand nine and ten, and it, this was during the height of the Afghan war in terms of combat activity for U.S. troops on the ground, and then the subsequent number of of KIA and and uh, wounded troops, many of whom you had the responsibility of transporting to receive critical medical care. And in addition to supporting the, the Marines on the ground and the British Royal Marines, you know, you've had the awesome responsibility to insert and extract some of the Air Force and some of the military's most highly elite and, and capable operators. You know, wh- what have you enjoyed most about supporting these operators and how, how do you think you've benefited from getting to work alongside of them? Well, obviously, anytime you're working around uh, elite type of warriors, they always come prepared. They always come with an energy and a professionalism that is infectious. So when you're working with and supporting any type of uh, mission where you're, you know that it's going to be dangerous, it always is going to draw the best out of you. So if someone else is coming as prepared as they possibly can, I, I believe that it's your obligation to provide the same thing to them. And, you know, being that we're the helicopter you know, their means of getting in and out, without us uh, executing our job, they, they can't execute theirs. So there's that kind of symbiotic relationship amongst uh, the, di- the different people that we support, in particular the PJs. And I can say just, you know, having seen, you know, the, the talent and their ability to save soldiers on the ground and, and really make that medical difference they can get in they can provide security they can provide the medical uh, you know the medical support that's necessary in terms of stabilizing patients and and you know getting them from that point of injury back to uh, advanced medical care and just they do it in such amazing fashion you, you said that you flew in excess of 100 combat missions or sorties while you were in afghanistan during the course of your two deployments a majority of those missions then were in, in su- support of moving Troops that were in, in need of critical me, critical medical yeah, so, care. Yeah, so the primary civilians. the primary function the primary function for what we were there to do is personnel recovery, and it used to be called combat search and rescue, but it it kind of got rebranded as personnel recovery. So, what would happen is, uh, Army flies medevac, so they have the Red Cross on the side of their helicopter. Uh, the Air Force has fifty cal machine guns on the side of ours, so we can provide a, a, a bit of a more uh, contested environment. Uh, we can get in there and, and affect uh, being able to kind of shoot our way in and shoot our way out. Whereas in a lot of ways, when the Army's deployed, they, they need some sort of additional aviation asset in order to support them, whether that be Apaches or A-10s. Whereas some, you know, a lot of times it's nice for us to have, have those assets as well, but it's not always going to be available to you, you know, based on, you know, what missions are going on. So a lot of times, and also depending on what was going on on the ground. If you're in an active combat engagement, the PJs are able to get in there and make a difference in terms of the fight as well. So they can kind of fight their way into that environment, you know, because a lot of times if there's an IED blast, there's still maybe an active shootout going on. Sure. And these guys are going to get in there and they're going to start to, you know, cut up the vehicle to, to make the extraction. So it's a little bit more complex a lot of times the operations we're, we're rolling into as far as the kinetic environment. Okay. But then on occasion, you would fly kind of straight medevac. 
Yeah, so there well. were plenty of times we were doing medevac missions. We did uh, a lot of hum you know humanitarian type of work as well. You know, a lot of um, civilian missions that we did over there. You know, kids are stepping on landmines left over from the Russians, kind of thing. So you know, we would go out there and we you know we'd pick those those type of folks up and uh, bring them you know to the same trauma centers to be treated that the, uh, the you know soldiers and Marines were being treated at. So it's been almost a, a decade since you were flying in Afghanistan. Is there a particular mission or two that, that kind of stands out in your, your mind or, or memory in terms of like a mission you're particularly proud of or one that was particularly intense? So we landed at the embassy in, this is in 2009, at the U.S. Embassy in, uh, in Kabul to uh, pick up a fallen Marine and uh, it was it was a bit of a chaotic. We were coming back from uh, another mission, and we had another patient on board the aircraft. But they were calling. They wanted to get this marine, you know, they get this marine's you know remains out of, out of the embassy. There was there was a lot of chaos going on at that time, and kind of uh, in a, in a certain sense, Kabul was burning at the time, and uh, you know there there was a lot of uh, it was a, it was a tough way in and out and, and they were jamming the radio so we couldn't we couldn't even communicate to the other helicopter and I can remember landing down at the embassy and uh, four marines came out with uh, this gentleman's body and just being glad that it, that we were there able to uh, you know get this guy and get him back to his family so they could you know mourn their loss it was a fallen marine fallen marine yeah so uh, you know to me Every mission is, you know, you always hope for the best and that you're going to be able to, uh, you know, save someone's life. But a lot of times, you know, we've had everything from folks bleeding out on the back of the helicopter and literally dying, you know, several feet, you know, several feet behind me as we're trying to fly them, you know, back to the hospital, as well as, you know, picking up guys that have already lost their lives. And, you know, those missions have, have a different sense or feeling to it. And... You know, I'm always honored to be a part of getting them back to their families because that's the most important obligation we have is to always get our military members home. Somber and noble duty for, for sure. January 15, 2009 is a historic day in the history of U.S. aviation. It's the day on which U.S. Airways Flight 1549, under the command of Captain Chesley Sullenberger, landed with 155 souls on board on the Hudson River. Miraculously... All 155 souls survived. You just happened to be in Afghanistan flying missions in support of combat and rescue operations on this on this day. W were you aware of the miracle on the Hudson or the miraculous landing on the Hudson? And if so, as an aviator, like what what thoughts did you initially have on Sully's performance or the outcome? So that particular day, I had just before that had happened, I had uh, just gone to bed, and I was. I was laying in my bunk, getting ready to just chill out, decompress after getting off a, a long shift. And you guys were physically where? At we the were. Time? So we were at Bagram. You're at Bagram. Yeah, so we were at Bagram at this time, and uh, we were on, you know, we were on alert. Kind of just, we were at the oper you know, the TAC, Tactical Operations Center all day, and it was just like, all right, we're still holding the alert, but now I'm going to just try to get some some rest. So. Uh, so I was laying in my bunk, and we got the the uh, scramble call. So you know it kind of goes off like scramble, scramble, scramble. You know attention on the net, and then th they start to rally you in for uh, the means of basically a mission's going to drop, 
you know, the Intel folks are, are collecting information, command and control element are going to accept the mission or not. So we come in and as I walk into the back into the operation center, we, you know, they have CNN on, on the, the big screen and you can see that the plane, you know, had just landed and they were starting to come out onto the wing. And you could see the FDNY boat, you know, you could, so in my mind, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this, this plane just landed in the river and everyone's alive. Unbeknownst to me that several minutes later, I'm going to be in my own amazing kind of uh, survival situation. So we, we accept a, a, a CAT Alpha, which is the, the highest level of, uh, you know, medical response, you know, in terms of urgency. We accept that mission. Me, at that time, I was a co-pilot, so... My job at that point is to go out and get the aircraft set and ready so that way when the aircraft commander comes out with all the, the necessary information we need, that everything's kind of ready to go. The engines are, are, are running and the nav system's spooled up and we can just, he can hop in the aircraft and we can take off. So I get out to the aircraft. It's late at night. You know, it's, it's just before midnight for us. I can remember that I'm just trying to get the navigation system up. And at that time, I, it, wasn't, it wasn't spooling up. So now I'm starting to kind of fall behind the eight ball there. And so uh, the other pilot comes out, the aircraft commander. He's like, you ready to go? I was like, listen, this is the general direction of where we're going. I can start getting you, you going there, but the NAV system's not up yet. He's like, well, does, does two have their, their NAV system up? I said, they have the NAV system up. They can, you know, they can kind of help us if we need it. So he hops in, we take off. And at the time, the mission that we accepted weather was not good at that time like the the ceiling was about 500 feet agl above ground which for helicopter flying in the mountains is is usually not gonna you know meet with success but the the way that the uh the operations group felt was let's go out let's see if you guys can can get through one valley because a lot of times the way the weather is it can be socked in in one valley the next one over it's it's crystal clear Mm -hmm. just the way the weather patterns move throughout that country so we took off, and I can remember it being so dark. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of a little bit frazzled because I'm trying to get this nav system up, and I'm trying to get all the, you know, now I'm manually inputting where we're trying to go to. And we were going to uh, uh, an area called Ghazni. That was our first point that we were t- to get to, and then we were heading off to this other location called Gardez. So that's where we were ultimately going to do our pickup. It was in Gardez. So... As we're, we're flying along, I'm just like, I cannot believe how dark it is. And, and for me as a new co-pilot, having never deployed, you know, for the, this was one of my first rescue missions that I was on. And the previous missions were during the daytime. And I can remember before we left for Afghanistan, they're like, oh, it's dark over there. And I was like, okay, you know, I think I've seen dark because flying out over the Atlantic Ocean, it gets dark. I promise you that. And a lot of the training flying we do prior to leaving is is over the ocean. So, but this particular uh, flight, I just remember being like, I cannot believe how dark it is. I can barely see. And uh, so now finally the nav system comes up. So now we, you know, we're starting to, you know, catch up a little bit in terms of where we've got to go and, and our situational awareness. But at the same time, it's almost zero visibility because of the, the storm that we're flying in. And what happens with night vision goggles is that in order for the goggle to work, you need a certain amount of ambient light. Otherwise, the goggle doesn't perform the way it's supposed to, and you get what they call scintillation. So it's a, a sparkling effect into the goggle. And my goggles were sparkling like mad. <laughs> and I was like, oh, God. 
So I'm talking to the aircraft commander, and I'm, I'm trying to now build his situation and awareness of where we're heading, you know, in terms of altitudes, what to expect. I'm saying, you know, there's, there's rising terrain off to the right side. So if we have to lean, you just, you know, make sure we go left if we have to escape out. And as this is happening, you know, this, the, the, what, the clouds just keep coming lower and lower and lower. So now we're flying about maybe 200 feet. And I can see at certain points, like, why we're flying over wires. And it's almost until we're just on top of these wires where it's like, oh, there's wires. So I said to the other pilot, I said, I don't, I don't know if we're going to be able to make this. The weather doesn't look good. I said, what do you think? And he's like, yeah, this, this doesn't seem, you know, like this is going to be feasible. You know, we've made, we've made our attempt. Uh, you know, let's, let's, so he radios back to the, the other aircraft, and he asks them for their input. They basically kind of agree with what we're saying. So we make the decision to RTB, return to base. You know, that we gave our best effort, but that this wasn't going to work out. So uh, in order for deconfliction, because of how dark it was, the other aircraft was having trouble even seeing where we were. So, you know, he, so the aircraft commander said, all right, you guys, you know, initiate your turn, you know, return to base, gave him a heading to follow. And then, you know, we gave him like a, you know, three count, and then we initiated our turn. When we entered into the turn, I was looking for the other aircraft because, you know, we made a left turn and they had, you know, they were on my side of the aircraft. And typically, what, what would the distance be between your aircraft and theirs? Uh, it could be maybe 200 feet or so. so okay. You know, rel- you know, within a, the scope of flying time, you know, I mean, it's, a, it's only a, less than a second of impact sure. amongst each other. So, you know, we, we can fly anywhere from 20, you know, 50 feet is a, is, is a tight formation, but... You know, when you're kind of what they call combat crews, you're a little further apart just in order to, to maintain that deconfliction. Plus, you also don't want to present a larger target in terms of, you know, enemy engagement. So you'll, you'll kind of hang back a little bit. Okay. So they initiate their turn. They're about halfway through. We initiated our turn. I can see where they are. I can see where they are. I can't see where they are. I'm like, oh, yeah, we've just gone into the clouds. Now, at the same time, you know, because of how dark it was, the other pilot who was flying at the time, he didn't realize that we had gone inadvertent into the weather. So, because same thing's happening with his goggles, it's happening to mine. And the thing about this was I transitioned to my instruments. I didn't verbalize that, which is something I should have done. I should have said, I'm transitioning to instruments where, uh, where IMC at this point. In, in, a, in a lot of ways, what was happening to us as a crew was we were being task saturated by the weather, what was going on, trying to, you know, get through this turn. And uh, everyone kind of went silent, which is never good for, you know, a, a crew that's supposed to be communicating through an event. So, you know, we were task saturated. We're getting into this now unusual attitude uh, with the aircraft. And uh, we begin to uh, enter into a, basically a, cra- a crash sequence. And I can remember getting on the controls with the other pilot and uh, verbalizing that I'm on the controls. And then, uh, you know, at 50 feet, I could see on the radar altimeter that ground was, was going to, we were going to impact imminently. So I basically just tried to right the aircraft, pull some power in and arrest the, uh, the impact. We ended up impacting the ground and then we, we rolled upon impact. My helmet came off. I can remember that. And then rolling for several hundred feet until we, you know, finally finished up upside down on the side of a uh, 
So rolling down the side of a mountain. Yeah, we were rolling down the side of a mountain. Several several revolutions. How many? I don't exactly know, but it, it was like being in a uh, washing machine. Pieces of the aircraft were all over all over the place by the time we finished up. For you know, and how many days. other? In addition to the co- the commander, the so, other pilot. How many? So the the crew, crew complement is the aircraft commander, the co-pilot, the flight engineer, the gunner, and then we had uh, three pararescue with us. Two PJs and one crew, combat rescue officer. So seven of you in seven total. Seven total. So as we as we complete the uh, the crash sequence, I can remember hanging upside down in my harness, and just being, oh my god, I'm alive! And then all I hear is a dog barking about twenty five feet from me, guys screaming that the helicopter's on fire. And now I start to go through my emergency procedures for getting out of, out of the aircraft. I'm trying to get the emergency release handle to open. It won't open. I'm trying to get it to open. It won't open. And all I feel at that time is like the heat because the, the engine on my side of the aircraft is roaring. There's fire coming out of it. It's, the whine is tremendously loud. I'm certainly disoriented at this time, you know, just having gone through that event. And uh, finally, I just uh, reach towards the normal handle to open the door and it pops right open so i get out of the aircraft and when i get out of the aircraft i land on the ground and i'm in about three feet of snow wow so we're we're on where this helicopter is is on a a hut halfway uh, it's upside down hanging off a hut in what is according to the intelligence reports basically taliban land and uh so the urgency to get out of that area and the other Aircraft. The, so the other aircraft at, at that point uh, thinks that we've crashed, and they're, they're having their own issues as well because of what was going on with the weather. So they radio back to uh, the base that, you know, our aircraft went down and that they're going to try to loiter around and find us, which isn't the right decision. So luckily for the, uh, the leadership back home, they said, no, you can't stay there. you got to get back. So they ended up diverting to Kabul and... Uh, and so they were kind of out of the out of the picture. And, and they, they don't they don't even know whether or not you've survived. The no, they have at this point they have no idea whether we've survived or not. And it's going to take a little time till even we can get up get up our comms up and ready to go because where we were was not a good place to be, uh, you know, uh, down airmen. Let's put it that way. So the other pilot, you know, the aircraft commander, he's kind of his side of the helicopter is buried in. He can't get out of his side. So I went into the hel- back into the helicopter, and this is. One of those moments I was very thankful to have been a fireman because operating in that helicopter that's on fire with jet fuel leaking, not that I was comfortable, but I just, you know, it was one of those things that was instinctual to me. And ha- having been in an environment that's, that's dark and hot, you know, having been exposed to that before, it didn't, it didn't bother me in, in the sense that I was, you know, I went into the helicopter several times to get the 240, to, to get all the classified documents to help guys get out of the aircraft. And certainly having had some experience, even though it was only, you know, short, you know, with the, you know, with the fire department, I had been to fires, I you know, had been exposed to some of that prior. And then also, you know, going to survival school and, and you know, completing those things. It, it, you know, through the course of that whole process, it certainly has its merits and I'm thankful for those, you know, that training. So. What, and what time of day? So this is our morning, is it? So this is now probably somewhere around midnight. And it's, you know, now it's, we're on the ground, it's dark, we're in the snow. 
and it's still continuing to snow at this time. In between, I guess, the, the impact and then the, the dog or dogs barking, the locals know that you're yeah, so, in the, yeah, in the we ville. Just, we just parked a helicopter upside down on the side of their village, so they know we're there. Now, no one came out right away, thank God, you know, and, and I think they were probably just as scared you know, they're not expecting a helicopter basically land. And you have a you have a rifle or a pistol or both? So I have my M4 uh, and M9. Okay. So all of us are, are equipped with M4s. And both weapons were still in your possession? No. So I had to go back into, so that was part of, you know, getting back into the aircraft. I had the M9 on me, but I, my rifle through the course of that crash sequence was not where I had left it. Wow. Needless to say. So, uh, so I was able to get in there and, uh, and get the rifles and, you know, so once we were able to kind of muster in front of the aircraft, it became, you know, we got to get out of here. This is not a, a defendable position. So, uh, we ended up hiking up into basically the wilderness and, uh, we went for high terrain, you know, and, uh, were any of the members of your crew? So no one had catastrophic injuries, you know, there were, there were definitely, guys were injured and, and what I would say is the best way is guys were hurt right you know but you know we were all able to move and the amazing thing about that is you know for, for both myself as the co-pilot and the other pilot we're in a five-point harness but everyone in, in the back is basically on pigtails so they're they're really flying around and you know when we were rolling those guys were all over the back of that helicopter and uh, you know so just what a tremendous fortune that no one was catastrophically injured or, or thrown out of the aircraft and crushed. How uh, quickly were you able to communicate to higher headquarters that you were accounted for, but you're in distress and in need of, I mean, you're the guys that normally go to rescue people that are in Yeah, so when the rescue has become the rescued, you know, kind of situation is, yeah. is, is, in, is happening. And it took about 40 minutes until we were able to kind of get enough distance because the most important thing at the initial, you know, point of once we knew everyone could move was to get away from the location we were at because we did not have a, a defendable position. And it was, according to all intelligence reports, you know, Taliban country. So, But you're also going to probably need some shelter depending upon the amount of time you're spent on the ground, right? Yeah. So that wasn't one of our initial concerns is shelter. It was more just kind of getting distance away from the actual wreckage itself, you know, in order for us to start making comms, come up with, you know, a uh, an assessment of our injuries and then, you know, decide where we were going to go from there. And people were at different levels of almost in a certain sense shock at that point as well. You know, we weren't all operating, uh, you know, necessarily high functioning at that time, you know, just based on having survived the crash. What we were involved in is now we're, we're surviving for our lives, literally. And so we, we ended up going for high terrain. We d decided that, you know, at some point this was going to be, we could see that there was a, a, an additional uh, structure at the top of one of uh, a peaks that we, we, were, we were climbing up. And so we, uh, we kind of made it a, an assault on that, and we ended up taking two Afghanis captive for the evening that night. Uh, and, you know, I can't say whether they were Taliban or not Taliban, but we, we were not going to let them go. Right. Uh, and, you know, having seen Lone Survivor and knowing that story. I was, was going to ask if you, if you had a, a Lone Survivor slide or mental model of sorts somewhere in the back of your, your So that had, that had happened in and around, the, you know, I think it had happened just prior to us getting there. So I didn't even really know much about that story at that time. Marcus Luttrell was ultimately rescued by uh, Air Force Combat Rescue. So uh, I knew the pilot who was involved. But I didn't know the story at that time, not till 
several years later, having spoken to uh, Spanky Peterson, who's the the aircraft commander who made that pickup. And if you ever met this guy, you'd be like, oh my God, <laughs> his name is Spanky for a reason. <laughs> so, I mean, amazing aviator and a, a true hero. But, uh, you know, in my mind, learning that story later on and being in a very similar situation, though not nearly probably as dangerous, you know, based on the numbers. But to me, it, it seemed like we would never let anyone go at that point. If we had to keep hiking for miles and miles, they were coming with us. Yeah. Just because where the village was, you know, and their ability to access. And at a certain point through that night, we could see the Taliban trucks coming towards our position. Wow. And so, you know, they knew we were there. They were trying to access where we were. But the fact that there was three feet of snow on the ground made it difficult for them to get to where we were. So, you know, at that point, we were able to set up a, a position in which we could defend as well as, uh, you know, having the the terrain and the, the snow helping us out. So uh, at some point, we were able to make our comms about 40 minutes, you know, past the, the crash. And then, we, you know, we were able to say, you know, kind of what our medical status was, where we were heading. And uh, so they, they said they were going to try to get uh, assets to our position. You know, we re relayed to them that aviation wasn't an option. So uh, the Army sent the QRF team. And so they dispatch a team to come to get us. And then somehow there's some miscommunication along the way where then they get turned back around. So it's not until the next morning till the, the QRF actually comes to, to us about, I'd say, somewhere between 6 or 7 in the morning. And some of those details are kind of lost on me now. So exactly. the sun is up? Yeah, sun, sun, sun is up. By the okay. time they're able to to get to our position, and they they where the the crash had happened, they came to that village and they basically took it over. So uh, they came in with a whole bunch of Humvees and uh, you know striker vehicles to kind of just kind of overwhelm that area. And so they came in, they set up you know a defensible position for us to come back down and descend from higher terrain. Uh, so it was. All in all, a very uh, interesting night because we were surviving out there in the snow, you know, with enemy aware of our position and trying to access where we were. You know, fortunately for us, it didn't come to uh, an actual, you know, firefight. Yeah, and it's one of those things, oddly, it sounds like the inclement weather is what, to some extent, led to the, yeah. the crash, but then also delayed the enemy forces yeah, so much of, of what was going on was here we are basically uh, being taken out in a blizzard. The blizzard saves us because there's three feet of snow on the ground. So when we impact and then roll, we're rolling in snow. Whereas if we were probably just rolling on hard terrain, it may have been a much different uh, outcome in terms of injury sustained. And then it's also, in a, in a sense, helping us because now it's not allowing the enemy forces to access us. So, yeah, in a, in a lot of ways, <laughs> that storm <laughs> has some... Yeah, and you're, you're an analytical guy of sorts. Statistically, what do you think the chances are of achieving the same outcome in terms of seven individuals being on that aircraft that's oh, subjected yeah. to that crash sequence and then all seven live to tell the, the tale? If it wasn't that day, odds? yeah, I, I would say the odds, odds are infinitesimal. You know, it's it's highly unlikely that you know, if that would happen the next day or the next day or the day prior, that it would be met with the same results. So in so many ways, I mean, we just happen to have fortune on our side. And 
you know, to be fair to us as well, like we never stopped working, even though we were met with, in a lot of ways, being overwhelmed by the situation, everyone was still working to survive. I never stopped trying to write the situation, nor did the other pilot. So, you know, and, and the, the crew was still working, though not effectively. We were still working to, you know, get through that, you know, that, that sequence. Yeah, and I think the fact that you attribute some of the things that you, you and your crew members did under inordinate pressure in that environment was a, was a credit, or you're, you're attributing it to your training both in the fire department as well as SEER school, I, I think speaks, speaks volumes about the, the preparation. Yeah, and, and even going forward past that point, you know, for me, you know, there was an accident investigation. The, the lucky thing for us as a crew was that the ops group commander, who was an A-10 pilot, this guy Donk, that's his call sign, amazing, amazing leader. Uh, he said to us when we, when we got down, you know, when we finally were, were back to the base, you know, the next day, he's like, listen, we sent you out there to do an impossible task under, you know, extreme, extremely difficult, you know, circumstances. This is combat. You know, you went out there to try to save a person's life, which is the most noble thing we can, you know, ask of you. And you went out there and it didn't work out. He said, we're going to go through this accident investigation. And as long as, you know, everything, you know, goes the way it should, we're going to get you guys back up because I need you. I need you out there. I need you guys flying again. And, uh, you know, having had that support, you know, because when you come back from that, there's, there's a lot of things you, you know, you have to look yourself in the mirror and, and really take a, a deep assessment of yourself. And for me, having had that initial support, as well as, you know, other leadership within my squadron, you know, was, that was a, a tremendous help, especially at that time, to get myself motivated to go back into it again. And they went through the you know, the accident investigation, and there were a multitude of things from how the risk mitigation, you know, wasn't handled correctly, and, and some of that was left over from the previous unit, you know, so there, there was a, a whole host of things that could have been done differently in order to affect how we executed that mission. So, you know, we, we uh, gave all honest answers to everything that was asked of us, and, uh, you know, we felt that we did, you know, the best we could under those circumstances, and we didn't meet success that time. And for us, you know, they kept us together as a crew, which I don't necessarily know was the best decision at that time. But, you know, looking back on it, you know, it certainly builds a camaraderie that will be lifelong. But, you know, when it came time to, you know, getting back in the aircraft and starting to execute missions again, you know, it, that was difficult. And, uh, you know, very challenging for us as a crew and to trust each other, to trust ourselves and to, uh, you know, focus on the mission. And that, you know, we were presented with several times past that point on that deployment, similar situations, flying in really bad weather, you know, getting in, you know, going inadvertently into the clouds and mountain passes, and we were able to, you know, meet those challenges with success. So for us, that was, you know, a tremendous hurdle, but something that had to happen because of the gravity of, our obligation as as rescue workers. Yeah, I got to think that's that's an incredibly tough horse to to get back on after an, an event as intense as as that. 
there, there's a gentleman who has contributed to Leadership Under Fire in the FDNY program. He's an academic named Dr. Preston Klein, and he likes to talk about this concept of residue, um, the notion that we are kind of the sum of our previous experiences, good, bad, and, and ugly, and we kind of carry this residue with us going forward. I'm just like curious if there were any particular kind of like scars physically and or, or, or mentally that you had to kind of navigate as a pilot, as a leader, or as a teammate to kind of work through this near-death experience as you're then in the short time following flying, continuing to fly high-risk combat missions? So for that deployment, uh, for me, I had, you know, once I made the, the conscious decision to get back in the aircraft, and I'm so thankful that I did, and I'm thankful that I was given that support, because had they sent us home, which they easily could have after that type of, you know, category, you know, cat A, you know, accident. I don't know if I would have ever got back in the cockpit again, you know, having you know, really been shown the failure. Instead, we were presented an opportunity to continue to succeed and grow. So once I made that decision that I was going to do it, then in a lot of ways at that time, I compartmentalized some of my fears and personal doubt and just focused on the mission and, and taking responsibility because we weren't all kind of growing at the same time through this experience. You know, everyone handles th those stresses differently. So I put as much of it as I could on myself. And the other, uh, the aircraft commander, he also, you know, grew into, you know, I think at first there may have been some doubt, but, you know, as, as I continued to fly with him, very experienced aviator, he was able to teach me so much along the rest of that deployment, which, you know, I took for me as an aviator for the rest of my life, you know, going forward, he was able to teach me so much about how to manage a crew, how to manage, you know, risk, also the tactical side of things as well. So I'm very thankful for that. And then for me, some of, some of the biggest things was when I got home, that was when, when, the, when the mission stopped and there was a little bit of quiet. That's when I didn't want to deal with it, in a sense, you know. And that was because I, you know, there was no more mission to, to do, you know, in terms of making actual real-life saves. When you're, when you're out there saving someone's life, it's easy to compartmentalize what's inside of yourself sure. to execute. And coming back and then, you know, kind of hearing sometimes, you know, people kind of not necessarily they, everyone wants to know about it you know every, what, what was it like you know how did it go and I wasn't ready to talk about it and I will say this I'm very thankful because when I came back to the fire department they made me go see the counseling services and I did spend some time with one of the psychologists and kind of went through a lot of that stuff and it, it helped me kind of work through it and uh, you know because of all the the robust counseling services that were set up for folks after 9-11, after the uh, infrastructure was in place, and to me it was very helpful. And uh, I'm super thankful for that. But, you know, it, it, it certainly... It's, yeah, and I think it's a sentiment that's consistent with everyone that we've... that we that we know who's done these deployments, right? And Sebastian Younger probably does the, the best job of actually conveying it, right, in, in, in Drive, but a lot of times folks on the outside think it was the deployment that was the, the toughest part of the journey. No, it's actually coming... It's coming home. It's maybe not having a mission that that's as important or significant as the one that we had when we were downrange, and then it's 
having to sit with this and process it and make make sense of it. Um, so, I mean, that certainly doesn't surprise me that coming home and, and trying to process it would be more difficult than, than doing it in the moment. But, or during the course of your deployment, though, I, I got to tell you, man, I have tremendous respect for the fact that you're your team and crew got got back on the horse as quickly as you you did, despite the challenges. And as a disclosure, um, this is the second time that I've heard this story in in detail. A couple of things that I find really really striking is, well, the first being that you you don't speak about it frequently. And I remember the first time that I had heard, not from you, but but from like mutual friends on the the job about this this event. I was like, if, if that's if that's true, there there's got to be like literature out there. There's got to be like, you know, like it's got to be somewhere out there for people to read about. And then uh, I just did like a precursory search. There was like very little. And then after I'd heard about the story from you, I went back and did a more rigorous search, and there was like nothing. And I'm like, because from my perspective, th- this is one of the most incredible survival stories to come out of the post 9/11 wars. And obviously, there there are a number of them. Lone Survivor, Marcus Luttrell, but it, from my perspective, the outcome is is every bit as miraculous as the miracle in the Hudson. You know, like this is like the miracle in the Hindu Kush. <laughs> you go you go to Google and you do a search, and there's like one little snippet that that comes up. And I think that I think part of that it speaks to the fact that you guys were quiet professionals. And I also my sense is that some of that is the product of the fact that you guys wanted to just continued to fly without some of the, I don't know if baggage is the right word, but some of the notoriety that would have probably been associated with the event. I don't, like, Yeah, so think? obviously those two crash sequences between the, the uh, Hudson River and us in the Hindu Kush were literally less than a half hour apart. So, uh, you know, that's obviously a miracle in itself that, you know, everyone from both of those events survived. And, con- and continued on successfully with their lives. I am always willing to share my stories with people. I, I don't look to promote them, per se, but you know, when, when people have a curiosity or want to know something or they want to learn from something, then I feel in a lot of ways it's my obligation to share some of my experiences. And, and, the, and I found even going forward, I took on a large role for the the following deployment after that to make sure that the unit trained differently. Although we were all, according to, you know, the regulations and everything else, we were all ready to go and, and, and trained. There were other elements that needed to, to go forward for us as a unit to grow and to make sure that that type of event would, the unlikelihood of it to happen would be, would be less. And you can never stop helicopters from crashing because, you know, operating in those environments, it's going to happen. But you just want to give yourself the best chance to, to succeed. And so I took it upon myself to kind of manage the training program for the unit going forward to what they used to do was, was basically a two-week spin-up prior to the, the deployment where you'd, you'd go out to Arizona and train in the desert out there. And, and that's all fine and good. You know, and, and we're, you're still doing your normal training. But, you know, when you're flying in an environment you're familiar with, it, the intensity isn't there. So for me, I wanted to build a different uh, training profile that encompassed a longer period of time doing different types of events. And for us, the unit, w- you know, we, we knew we were going to shoot 50 cal, 
uh, on the Bastion deployment, the 2012-13 the deployment, and our unit was mostly familiar with shooting miniguns. So that was something I wanted to add in there to make sure our gunners were all ready to go shooting 50 cal. And so, you know, I had put together several different uh, TDYs to go up to Fort Drum and, and other places to, to shoot, as well as to get ourselves set up for a lot of the, uh, the desert flying. So we, you know, we set some more uh, TDYs to go to different locations to train more reflexively to how we'd actually be operating in combat. So for me, I took a, a very personal, like, obligation to make sure that the unit was going to be ready to go because I didn't want what happened to me to happen going forward to the best of my ability. Yeah. And and you can't control everything, but you can you can certainly prepare. Yeah, no, I I like that. And I think even despite the fact that the outcome in your your case was was nothing shy of a miracle, it, it once again kind of validates the risk associated with flying, particularly in combat, which is interesting because in a commercial context in the United States, aviation is one of probably has become one of the safest of activities. But I, I think it's fair to say that military avi- aviation, particularly in combat, remains one of the most dangerous high-risk activities that people in, in, engage in. And though your near-death experience in, in Afghanistan miraculously ended in a near-death story of, of survival, um, s- some of your comrades and, and close friends ha- haven't been so fortunate. So I know that you have great admiration for folks like, uh, you know, Trip Zanatis and, and other guys, members of the FDNY who, similar to yourself, are wearing two hats simultaneously and, and serving downrange. You know, certainly free to comment or remark on their, uh, their sacrifice and, and service. So uh, in 2018, my unit lost two other New York City firefighters, Christopher Raguso and Trip Zanitas. And uh, they were in Iraq supporting task force operations on the Syrian border. And they struck wires and, and the helicopter didn't survive. For me at that time, I was getting out of the military and uh, my paperwork was already sup- you know supposed to have cleared and it didn't. So uh, one of my final missions was to, to go down to Dover and, and sign for the remains and to be with the families and kind of, you know, the unit was still deployed at that time. So uh, I was one of the last officers still remaining home. Trip was my co-pilot in uh, 2012 and 13. And him and I did a lot of amazing rescue work. And he was an amazing aviator, friend, just very intelligent, hardworking, just the kind of person that even though I was the aircraft commander, I could still learn so much from the person sitting two feet from me in that aircraft. And my first mission as an aircraft commander, you know, when, I, when we got to Bastion, Camp Bastion in Afghanistan, we got sent out to make a, a simple, what I thought was going to be a simple pickup. And it was just to go to a forward operating base and, and when we got there, we couldn't figure out where the landing zone was. And I was a little bit disoriented. They had, the whole thing was, was plumed out with lights. It was hard to see where the landing zone was. And, you know, Tripp says, I, I think I have it. I said, all right, well, co-pilot has controls, you know. Like, and for me, as, the, as a new aircraft commander, relinquishing control, you know, is not necessarily an easy thing to do. But for me at that point, I felt it was the right thing to do. He had 
the the higher situational awareness, and I had the confidence in him that he could get it done, and he did. So you know that started you know a good bond for us as. as and when we landed, you know, we came back to the base and we landed. He was like, I can't believe you gave me the controls. I was like, hey, man, we're a team, you know. So we've done this on the fire floor. We'll, we'll do it up here, you know. So, uh, you know, I had to, you know, not put, put my ego in front of executing the mission. I think that, start to the, that was the start to the deployment. And him and I did some amazing work together. And we, you know, we picked up a lot of severely injured soldiers Sailors, Marines, British Army, Afghan Army, civilians. I mean, just we did tre tremendous work, stuff that I would be proud of for the entirety of my life. And having had him alongside me to do that was a tremendous honor. And so at that time when, when I was getting out of the military and, you know, that crash happened over in Iraq, you know, I kind of felt like, in a sense, like my stuff got delayed to be there to to go down there and and bring Trip back to his family and uh, you know back to the unit, so to get him home, and that's a difficult thing in itself because you're never prepared for that type of thing, and, and the emotional connection you have to someone because it is one of your friends, and so I'm certainly proud that I was you know there to support his family and and to support him. Yeah, kind of fitting that it would be your your final mission. You mentioned earlier there's no more no mission more important than bringing those home who who have uh, who have fallen. Have you seen Taking Chance? Sean? I have not. Oh, I would. The reason I mentioned is I was talking to some Marines this week who are um, still kind of reeling from the recent uh, event in Kabul where some of their uh, fellow Marines were killed, mm -hmm. and one of the Marines mentioned how he was just really taken back by the level of detail and our attention to detail applied like at every moment from the time that the Marine is killed in combat to the time he's at his final resting place. And there's a movie, it's probably, I don't know, 12 or 13 years old called Taking Chance with Kevin Bacon. Okay. And it's all about Lance Corporal Chance Phillips' journey home from Iraq. And uh, anybody who's ever been involved with with escorting the remains of the fallen home. I think it, I think it just really resonates with, with so many people who have served, but it, it gives everyone a, a much de deeper appreciation for what, for what happens. Yeah, and I can say from my personal perspective of picking up soldiers that have lost their life on the battlefield or have lost their life in the back of a helicopter that I'm flying or even just standing on the side of the road before they load them up onto a C-17 where they have all the, everyone on the base line up as the, uh, you know, the remains, the coffin is, you know, brought to, to the aircraft. You feel connected to it in a way that's so personal and you know what that sacrifice that person made. And it motivates me to try to be better, to care more about the little things because something you do can, you know, have an effect on, on maybe that not happening or you're saving yourself or, or your other crew members. Yeah, no doubt. I think the FDNY is unique in that we handle those events with the same level of, of dignity. and The FDNY is born on the best at uh, honoring our fallen. Yeah. So kind of a natural segue, now that you're 
your days of flying in the military are over and you're you're a lieutenant in the New York City Fire Department. You work in a pretty challenging part of the city, lower Manhattan, and I know it's cliche, but there, there aren't a lot of fires, but when there are, <laughs> they go, they go crazy. Uh, you know, curveballs galore. On the surface, you know, flying a helicopter in Afghanistan and leading men and women at a fire in a high-rise commercial building in lower Manhattan are fundamentally different. But I think we would probably both agree that there are many parallels, particularly in a leadership capacity as well as on the human performance front. How do you think your experience as a combat aviator, both your success stories and and some of your um, your mishaps or, or, or near-miss type of events have made you a better leader at fires and emergencies? So for me, in a lot of ways, being a leader is an honor and, a, and it's an obligation. So uh, I think one of the things that's important is is understanding the capabilities of those you're working with. So, you know, I think it's important to assess capabilities and then not overextend past those capabilities. So uh, for me, I'm fortunate in my time in the fire department to have gone to squad one and go to a significant amount of fire duty that I don't get to go to now, but I have those experiences to draw upon and also to share. So, you know, so many folks on the fire department now are young and haven't necessarily been given all the opportunity to experience the same fire duty. That being said, it doesn't mean that their motivation isn't there. So in a lot of ways, it's, it's channeling their motivation, finding ways to communicate, you know, how, how they need to perform under pressure, and then providing the right training and drilling in the firehouse to not be lazy, to get in there at times and you know, even though we're all tired or it's hot to still do something, even if it's just a tabletop discussion, you know, just to keep guys involved in what they're going to be doing because it is so dynamic, especially fires in, in Manhattan because the buildings are big. It takes time to figure out what's going on. It's, you know, the problem is not always obvious. So, you know, kind of just taking a, a slower approach, whereas, you know, being in a Brooklyn company, everyone, you know, it's everyone's rushing towards the fire and, and, you know, trying to establish position. Whereas a lot of times in, in Manhattan, it's more being about disciplined in, in the sense of you, we're not racing the other companies in necessarily because, you know, you want to make sure that we're all working together because it's going to take multiple companies to figure, figure it out. Yeah, it certainly requires, you know, having worked down there with you for a year or two, it definitely requires depth in terms of re resources and a, a increasingly methodical and deliberate uh, approach, that's for sure. And, um, th and that's something I, that I felt like being a SOC company also gives you because one of the advantages you have as, as a SOC unit is often time is on your side because the, the units that first get in there are you know, attacking the problem or emergency a certain way. And then when you show up, you have the chance to kind of assess what they've done and take a different look at it. And uh, that's not necessarily something that they like us to do, but that's, that's where we can come in and solve problems as a SOC unit. Uh, I always found like a lot of times when I would get up to a roof, you know, as the roof man, you know, you get up there and there may be there may be a young firefighter up there, and you know, once they start seeing the sock guys get up on the roof, their their anxiety starts to go up a little bit. And I just, you know, I just would walk up to a guy and say, "Hey, man, I'm here to help. I'm going to listen up on the radio and just kind of 
not step on on what they're doing just kind of try to give them a little confidence that hey i'm not going to take over your job i'm just going to help you do yours and you know maybe i i get some information and i share it to to that firefighter and say hey you might want to let the chief know this where i don't make the transmission and then you know he makes the transmission he looks good to his company he looks good to the chief and i'm just in the background and that's being that quiet professional yeah man yeah i, I couldn't agree more you know relationships are are everything and as we start to bring things to a wrap it, it's it's interesting you mentioned quiet professional and i i spoke to this earlier but you're an incredibly quiet and humble professional uh particularly as it relates to your career as an aviator in in combat and just to reinforce or validate that point i know for a fact like we were together for the better part of a year downtown in the same firehouse you were in the you know, you're in the truck and I was in the engine. And I know for a fact that there were a number of guys in the company and in the house that don't actually know you're a combat aviator. And if they do, they have no idea the legitimacy of your uh, service as a combat aviator. And that's in large part because you're anything but a promoter and you easily could be. Like I said, I kind of hope in, in, in our lifetime, hopefully in the near future, when somebody Googles miracle in the Hindu Kush mountains or valley, <laughs> there will be some resources there because I think it's a story worth sharing and it speaks to the courage and in, integrity and commitment to service of not only yourself but those members of your of your air crew and as a fellow lieutenant as a fdny as a fellow service member veteran of the post 9 11 wars and as your 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 friend like i'm i'm incredibly grateful that of your willingness to come on and share because i know it's 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 not a story that you tell frequently you know as the, the founder of the Leadership Under Fire podcast, it, it, it warms my heart to know that a number of folks are going to be able to listen across the country, are going to be able to listen to the story of your, your service here in the near future and and walk away with some some principles and maxims and practices that they'll be able to implement in whatever high-risk industry they, they serve in. So I, I'm really appreciative and thankful for your willingness to kind of step outside your comfort zone and reflect and, and share and that said, uh, kind of appropriate here to, to close out the podcast conversation with a rapid fire of, of sorts. I know you're a, uh, a rather cerebral guy, well-read, student of many disciplines. So I got to ask, favorite podcast show? So I like uh, Tim Pool. Tim Pool. Yeah. Okay. It's kind of a political discussion kind of guy, but he, he is uh, kind of a center left. He used to work for Vice. And uh, he kind of just talks about what's going on in this world from a different approach than maybe I would see things, but I enjoy it. And I like Colin Coward. He's my sports guy. Okay. Favorite historical leader, Sean? Ooh, all right. I'm going to go from the macro. I'm going to go with Teddy Roosevelt. Okay. Uh, as far as uh, military goes, uh, I'm a big fan of Robin Olds. Amazing combat aviator from an ace from World War II in Vietnam. Just a tremendous leader, you know, and, and he was the type of guy who would lead from the front and, uh, you know, took, took it upon himself to make sure that he was always making his aviators better. And that's something that is important for all those are, you know, given the authority to lead other men and women. Favorite war movie? Black Hawk Down. <laughs> it's a good one. Yeah. I mean, I can remember sitting in the movie theater 
going to see that when it first came out, not really knowing a tremendous amount about that story and leaving, you know, and, and just after it was all over, being like, that was the most, you just felt so engaged in what was happening. And, and uh, even when I look back at it now, it, it, it feels like they did such a good job of showing what, you know, that type of event can really be like. All the challenges, the, you know, the decisions that have to be made under stress. I think they really captured that in a meaningful way. Yeah, I think the book is easily one of the all-time oh, you know, military cl classics. Yeah. Speaking of books, book on leadership that you'd recommend to our listening audience. Okay, so I'm going to pick a book that's not necessarily directly involved with leadership, but it's uh, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And uh, the reason I, I picked that book, and uh, I read that on both of my deployments when I first got into, uh, into combat, I'll say on my second deployment, my house got wrecked in Hurricane Sandy when I first got to Afghanistan, so I needed something to grab onto uh, to kind of help me through that situation because my life was imploding at home, and here I am starting a combat deployment, having to focus you know, and, and compartmentalize what was going on in my life at home versus what I needed to focus on in combat. And so I read that book again, and, uh, you know, being able to control your attitude, how you treat yourself, how you treat other people, how you focus on something. And uh, I, I feel like that's, it's a tremendous lesson you can, you know, because here this man is in a concentration camp, you know, in under the worst of circumstances and is still finding a way to, uh, you know, build purpose and have focus. So I think that's, that's a book that's certainly worth reading. Certainly a a definitive and timeless piece on, on resilience. And finally, a book on human performance that you'd, you'd recommend. Anything Goggins. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it goes back to, to the SEALs, right? Yeah. They, they have the market covered on, uh, on human performance. They certainly uh, put out a good product. Sean, I, I'd like to thank you for taking time out of your, your busy schedule to join me for this conversation here in Midtown. I've thoroughly enjoyed it, and I'm confident that our listening audience will as well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.